Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of the Zero Trust for Zero Gravity podcast. I'm your host, Dave Pira, CEO of Spider Oak, uh, providers of uh, blockchain and zero trust security for space. And, and every week we try to focus on someone who is on that crazy journey of space cyber, either from a research standpoint, technology, or thought leadership side. And it gives me great pleasure to um, welcome our latest guest, Professor Gregory Falco, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for almost two years now. Uh, when Again, when we were just first thinking at Spider Oak about exploring space cyber it was and frankly still is a really small group and community of folks, but Greg was one of the few people that was loud and proud about space cyber and really focusing on that as a research area. And he is coming out with a book uh, just published called Confronting Cyber Risk Endurance uh, Cybersecurity. And uh, we're welcome, glad to have you on the show. Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Dave. And thanks for having me uh, here today. So uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm a, a, I'm a professor uh, in uh, the Civil and Systems Engineering Department at Johns Hopkins University. I'm also joined with this place called the Institute for Assured Autonomy, uh, which is a collaboration between our engineering school and the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins. And the Applied Physics Lab is a unique place because it is a trusted agent to the U.S. government. And that means that if there are some cool R&D work that the U.S. government needs in some capacity, they will call on uh, the Applied Physics Lab to go do that work. Uh, so it kind of offers a translation zone for my research that you know might do here in my lab with my students to like actual military projects or, or space projects. So uh, it's kind of a fun opportunity to engage with the real world as, in addition to kind of my pie in the sky ideas with regards to space cyber. And uh, yeah, so I've been doing space cyber work for a number of years now and, and some of my early work in the space uh, I think it helped to inspire uh, and was used in part for the first uh, space cyber policy, uh, SPD-5, Space Policy Directive 5, on cybersecurity principles for space systems. Um, so have a good amount of exposure to both the technical community uh, as well as the policy community on this topic. But thanks again for having me, Dave. Absolutely. So let's kind of dive right in. So what's gotten better and what hasn't gotten better when it comes to space cyber? Because you've been following this topic longer than I have, and we have at Spider Oak. So what makes you smile? What makes you cry? Yes, uh, let's, let's start with the good stuff. What's gotten a lot better is just people now know that this may be a problem or something that they should even think about. Um, this you know, spans the gamut from both government officials who may take this problem more seriously uh, to also just like public knowledge. So it may be, sound ridiculous, but you know, the Netflix uh, show Space Force just really got people thinking about what does space security look like? And, and uh, you know, even in that show, they talk about like, oh, you know, China's hacking us or something like that. That really helps to raise public opinion or interest in this topic. Um, so I think things like that matter uh, when it comes to these fringe research areas that need to be brought to the fore. So I think that's what, something that's definitely making me happy that more people are talking about it. Um, something that's really frustrating, though, is that we don't we don't still have the the funding lines uh, or the priorities from a contracting standpoint to actually build these systems out to make them secure. 
Uh, there's, there's a lot of good talk right now, but talk is pretty cheap. And uh, one thing that you know is slowly progressing is that there's a number of uh, bills in progress in the U.S. to make space a more critical infrastructure sector, um, but also to require certain commercial space sector partners to do more with regards to cyber. There's a, there's a bill on the floor right now. Uh, it was introduced two days ago uh, on this topic. So there's there's public attention here, right? But we start we need to have the contracting vehicles to actually go do work in this space. So it's a lot different uh, to actually go do stuff than to just keep thinking about it. You know, I was on a conference on Friday where I was asked the question, you know, what would really help advance space cyber? And I said, actually asking for it in your contracts. Because mm-hmm. right now, you know, the way that everything's worded is like, I would like a satellite that has this sensor with this bandwidth, dot, 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 and make it secure, please. <laughs> you know, and that sends a very clear message to the community that security is kind of like, 10th on the list of requirements and therefore companies like spider oak you know we're coming in with an exquisite level of hardened security and you know there's kind of a shoulder shrug of like well no one's asking for that why are you trying to give me this level of security when we don't want it yeah yeah i I hear you Uh, it's definitely uh yeah (laughs) i i it stinks that you guys are feeling it um in that well way but it's it's been the same story for the past five or so years since we've been trying to ring the drum. So hopefully people are starting to listen. I had some feedback the other day from a contact at the Air Force saying that, you know, if you thought last year was good for space cyber investment, uh, this year is going to be blowing your mind. So who knows, maybe there, there is actually something to that statement and they'll really begin major investments in this area or, or, or specific requests in this area. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I've seen it a little bit. I don't follow this as closely as you do, but I felt that the whole DIU, Air Force, Space Force, hybrid space architecture uh, initiative with variable trust is one of the three pillars of the program was the first time where, wow, security got on the top three, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's an actual requirement, not just, and also secure it uh, kind of approach. So I thought that was nice. Yeah. Uh, zero trust. Uh, talk about how that has changed because you don't just focus on space cyber, but obviously that's what we're focused on here. There's a lot of executive orders coming out on zero trust in general. Notably, space was missing from a lot of that. How is zero trust in space happening or not happening? Well, it's definitely not happening right now. <laughs> uh, you know, space systems are inherently promiscuous, meaning that they talk to anyone they possibly can. They shout uh, their broadcasts out um, in order to be able to be heard. Uh, and doing that reliably is very important. So they don't want to mute their signal or encrypt their signal in case someone can't decrypt it if they need it. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of legacy issues as well. Uh, that pepper that area. So when it comes to zero trust in space, it's a kind of a joke right now uh, in terms of a practical side of things. However, there's a lot of good research and, and also products that you know, can be applied to these space systems to help enable this relatively quickly. Uh, and I feel pretty confident that a lot of the answer is in applying blockchain technologies and distributed ledger technologies to enabling that, that distributed coordination and that trustless ecosystem that's needed for uh, to actually enable the zero trust architectures. And I don't think that there's 
been a lot of uh, people taking this seriously until very recently, because often blockchain is thought of as a buzzword uh, and something that you know maybe hackers have used to get you know sell ransomware uh, or get money from ransomware. But it's definitely not the case, right? There's amazing use cases here for zero trust architectures. Um, something that my lab is working at on really closely right now, thinking about and building out proposals for the likes of Air Force and DARPA. So we, we have a lot of confidence in that type of technology. Just it, it, it's going to take a while to get over the hump of people realizing that this is a core purpose or reason why we should engage with distributed ledger technology. So it, I, I have a lot of hope in, in that area. Yeah, we, uh, as you know, Spider Oak Platform is built to run a um, permissioned distributed ledger. And, you know, we often struggle with, does that open or close the door for us? You know, obviously what a ledger can do, it doesn't solve all the world's problems, but provides, you know, fantastic, credible, provable, uh, you know, benefits. But at the same time, you get that eye roll of like, oh, you put a blockchain in space, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and there's that really just limited knowledge of it out there. So I, I feel it's a very much a double-edged sword, but, you know, one that we look forward to working with you as, as well. If we, uh, you know, get in your lab, you take a look at what we're doing. When did you kind of first start looking at distributed ledger as one of the potential solutions for space cyber? Yeah, so uh, we began looking. I looked. I started looking at um, distributed ledgers a number of years ago, way before I was interested in the space domain. Actually, uh, we started a company that we recently exited uh, that did industrial control security over the Bitcoin network uh, as essentially a ultra secure communication protocol, and um, it worked really interestingly for these industrial systems where you know. Failure is not an option uh, uh, for the integrity of communications that are sent over with regards to security updates. And so I had some great success there in uh, applying this technology to that domain space. And it became an open question after we exited the company, uh, you know, how do we take this to the next level uh, beyond some of the very obvious use cases for, for blockchain technology? And that's where Started, my, my group started to think more about, okay, well, maybe it's actually about designing architectures that facilitate blockchain protocols. And that's what we are looking at in our lab right now. And just for reference, when I say our lab, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have about 700 square feet of, of lab space where we have a bunch of hardware. Uh, we have a CubeSat there, uh, it has its flight grade. Um, we also have a bunch of UAVs. A whole bunch of space radios, a lot of fun stuff for students to play with. And we call it a breaker space. So our, our goal is to build these things up just so we can break them down uh, and figure out how they fail. And so this is something that we spend some time with. And, and uh, by building out these, these distributed ledger use cases for our space architectures, we're really trying to stress test them and determine how these are going to work for us or how they're not going to work for us. And so that way we have just a very realistic picture of, of what the reality is going to look like in the future uh, as, use, as we use this technology. So tell me a little bit about your, your book that you just came out. Once again, it's Confronting Cyber Risk and Embedded Endurance Strategy for Cybersecurity. I have not read it, but I can tell you, having been a chief technology officer myself at a number of companies, I love this word endurance. 
because there's often from an investor standpoint, or even when I reported to the CEO, this idea of, did you do it? Did you take care of the cybersecurity? Yep. I bought the firewall. I did it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, if you do it, then you're done with it. And endurance kind of embodies the absolute opposite of that. So can you comment on that? Yeah, totally. So I wrote this book with my colleague, Eric Rosenbach. He's uh, the co-director of the Belfer Center at Harvard. And uh, he was also the former uh, chief of staff for um, Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, under the Obama administration. So he has a lot of government and military uh, background. I have a lot of industry background, um, having spent nearly a decade in the uh, consulting world before I did my PhD. And so together, we basically came up with, we we created a class at, at Harvard um, for executives, for the most part, on how do you actually deal with some of these cyber risks that exist? Uh, the course is called um, Information Risk in the Digital Age, something of, or Digital Risk in the Information Age, something like that. Uh, so I'm spacing on the actual name of the course right now. But basically, the, the, the book was really about how do we help these executives to think through uh, how do you actually approach this as a systemic strategy that your organization needs to adopt in order for cyber to not just be the fly-by-night, oh, what kit should I buy today? Um, And I should go talk to this vendor because they're bugging me constantly. That's not the approach that executives need to take. The other problem that we started confronting and we wanted to address with the book is that we have a lot of executives, especially board members, who know cyber is a problem, uh, but they never really thought about it. And maybe then they get a, a bad call one day and they're like, oh, you have to come to a board meeting to go discuss this topic. And they don't know where to start. So this was booked to try and help them think, you know, pick up on the plane. It's a really short book and go read it. And you might have a good understanding of stuff by the time you get off that plane. Um, that's kind of why we wrote it. And then talking to your answering your question the, on the endurance bit, it really just was a reality that we were sick of hearing that. You can solve the cyber problem overnight or with one piece of technology. It's just not, it's not accurate. And so we were really trying to think about how do you embed cyber in everything you do in your organization and just plan for that and over the long haul. Uh, You're going to get hit, just a reality. You're going to get attacked. You're going to go down, but you need to kind of be resilient and you need to plan for this as an endurance exercise. And that's kind of the... Uh, reason why we created this embedded endurance strategy for cyber risk. And and how does that intersect with space, if at all? Because I feel like the book may be more toward like a exec at a terrestrial traditional company that is in space, but how do you uh, combine these two ideas? Yeah, I think that it's not necessarily not for space, but I think the space sector has a lot more growing to do before they can begin thinking about cyber as an endurance strategy. Um, now, one of the examples, though, I, I have in the book that I write about is when I, I spent some time at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in, in Pasadena, California. The team there I worked with, who, a really passionate group who cares a lot about cyber, uh, they had this game called Donuts. And Donuts was where if you left your computer on uh, and it was not password protected, someone was able to kind of go on your computer in your group and send it an email out from that person's email address that said donuts. Uh, and that person who was the offending uh, party that didn't lock their laptop had to buy the group donuts the next day. And I thought that was just oh. a cool, yeah, I thought that was a cool example of like how even you know a team that 
doesn't know, maybe the whole all of JPL doesn't really care about space cyber. Um, you know, now they do, but this was a number of years ago. That was a little tiny way that they were kind of able to embed cyber thinking in what they were doing. And those little examples, they really grow on you. And now JPL is, is trying to be a leader in space cyber uh, as an agency or as a, as a group. Um, so a lot of kudos to them. But that was just a cool little example of how even you know, someone who doesn't ever think about cyber as an organization, they can do something in some way. I love that example. Uh, speaking of some of experiences that you've had, tell us about Iceland. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I had the opportunity to go hang out in Iceland for a year or nine months, um, thanks to the pandemic. And, and the reason why was I was a Fulbright scholar there in uh, critical infrastructure s- cybersecurity. Uh, specifically, I was an NSF Fulbright scholar there. Um, so basically, my job was to go over there and uh, help to do some research on how the country is adopting cybersecurity practices uh, and help uh, improve relationships between the U.S. government and uh, Iceland uh, from a cyber cooperation standpoint. Um, and one of the things that I did when I was there was I had the opportunity to work with the emergent space sector. And it was really cool dynamic because there wasn't a formal body in the government that does space in Iceland. However, Iceland happens to be a great location for uh, polar Earth orbit launches. And so uh, countries have taken notice of that. Also, because of its proximity to the Arctic, Arctic Circle, uh, there's a lot of content, uh, it's contested, there's a lot of contest, uh, contested area around there. And it beca- it's uh, kind of a geopolitical power play that's going on in this region. And so we see an incredible amount of investment from the likes of China and Russia in Iceland, specifically in space. And so the question became, hmm, you know, if they're putting a lot of money into making the space sector a real sector in Iceland, uh, what does that mean for the security of it? And so kind of working with the Icelandic counterparts there a little bit with the government there, um, as well as with academic researchers there, we were trying to figure out, okay, well, what is what are the steps that we need to take so that it doesn't feel like this is just a China game because they're putting a lot of money in Iceland sector right now? Uh, and how do we make this a, play, a level playing field for everyone when it comes to a security standpoint? Um, so it was kind of interesting to see a very emergent space sector, doesn't have a lot of infrastructure, um, has a bunch of interest, uh, but it's also getting a lot of foreign money that could be concerning for, for more domestic you know, US-based or, or Europe-based players. Most surprising and delightful fact about Iceland that you'd like to share with people who haven't been there? Well, kids, little kids sleep outside in the winter uh, when they take their naps. It's really, really refreshing. Um, it's kind of a weird quirk that you think in America, you might say, oh, it's called child protection services. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a DCSF problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing. And actually, my, my wife grew up in Iceland. Uh, and I remember when my kid was, my first kid was born, she put him outside and I was like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> uh, but it's a thing. There's strollers all over outside in Iceland. The kids are bundled up and they're sleeping in their strollers in the middle of snowstorms. So kind of a <laughs> really delightful quirk there. <laughs> I love it. A- any parting comments on space cyber? Cause we're going to, I just, we just found out that we were both going to be presenting at uh, Cyber Leo, which is one of the very few events where there's that intersection of space and cyber. And it's not all about Leo, but Leo is the one that gets a lot of the attention given the proliferation 
as well as number of shared resources in Leo. So any parting shots? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you brought that up because the panel that I'm running at CyberLeo is on uh, ransomware threat to, to space cyber, uh, for especially in Leo context. And, you know, when I got this topic, I was like, well, this is interesting topic, but it's not really exclusive to space uh, as a conversation point. But then it became more realistic that, uh, you know, space may have a whole bunch more challenges than other sectors dealing with ransomware, given the timing elements of things when it comes to launch or when it comes to service delivery. Um, and so ransomware is a astronomical threat to the sector in different ways than it may be to other sectors. So kind of just as a parting thought is, you don't often always see space cyber as being the biggest priority in the world at first look. But then if you think harder about it, about how much space permeates everything that we do uh, and how all of our space systems are entirely digital at this point, or at least all of our future space systems are planned to be entirely digital at this point, um, you know, we have a big threat in our hands and we need to start pouring money into it in order to actually make take action on all of the vision that our government is putting forth uh, in the idea of space supremacy. So I think that's just you know, some parting thoughts on that. And uh, you know, it was a really good conversation, Dave. Thanks again for having me. Well, thank you for 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 joining. And you know, we like to get uh, a variety of perspectives and opinions. So stay tuned for our next episode of the Zero Trust for Zero Gravity podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>